what I found is there are a few people who are willing to talk about it, but mostly there was like it was like you were hitting a wall. They will not go against their group and think, oh well, it's not doing any damage. But actually, I'm now saying these people need to come out and open about it and advocate for for nuclear because it is doing damage to be anti-nuclear. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective addressing important societal issues. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. On this episode, I'd like to talk about environmental organizations and nuclear power, and why the two don't seem to mix. I'll be talking with a leading figure who has been both an advocate for leading environmental groups as well as an advocate for nuclear power. Now, before we start the interview, uh, if you've been following along and you enjoy my content, please leave a review on your favorite podcast app. And as always, uh, hit like and share this with your friends. Uh, Love to hear from you. Send a comment. Today on The Rational View, I host popular environmental advocate, Zeon Lights. Zeon is Director of Environmental Progress Europe and author of The Ultimate Guide to Green Parenting and Only a Moment. She is an environmental journalist and former editor of The Hourglass, Extinction Rebellion's newspaper. Zeon has a master's degree in science communication from the University of the West of England. Ms. Lights, welcome to The Rational View. Hi, Al. Thanks for having me. No, thank you for coming. You are uh, a unique person. Uh, your story uh, that I found on the internet inspired me to reach out for this interview. You were previously uh, a leading voice in the Extinction Rebellion in the UK, a staunchly anti-nuclear environmental group, and then you saw the light, pardon the pun, and now you advocate for nuclear projects. Your public advocacy with environmental progress has paved the way for government approval of the new Sizewell C nuclear reactor. Congratulations on your recent promotion to Director for Europe. Um, Thank you. I would say, though, um, Extinction Rebellion is not deliberately anti-nuclear. There are definitely a lot of anti-nuclear people in there, but they don't have any kind of policy on it. And there are some individuals like me who are pro-nuclear, even if they're quite quiet about it in Extinction Rebellion. That's good. <laughs> it's actually very good. Um, so, uh, preparing for this interview, I was browsing your website, uh, zionlights.co.uk, and I listened to your TED talk on stargazing. And it turns out we share an interest in astronomy. In fact, I went through school as a uh, for astrophysics, and I published a podcast on addressing artificial light at night as uh, a source of uh, night sky pollution. Your anecdote about going hiking as a young adult and seeing the Milky Way for the first time was, was a bit of a sad testament to how bad light pollution is becoming. It's easy to become disheartened about our effects on the natural environment, I think. Yes, and I think actually this is one campaign that hasn't taken off enough. You can talk about it, but I think actually it's, not, it's just not understood enough that we need to be able to see the night sky. And people don't really know what they're missing. Most people live in cities, right? They just don't really know what they're missing and I think if we did um, we'd be campaigning much harder to have you know more um, you know light switched off at night or at least just have some some dark nights you know yeah it's an easy fix but people aren't motivated at all it seems yeah it would really easy and I think lack of motivation is a lack of understanding of what we're missing out on although I've saw some recent research into the impacts on nature on wildlife um, from keeping the lights on all night and that may gain some traction because, you know, it'll help people have a connection to it, I think. Mm. The the aspect of being able to look up are just really hard to get across to someone unless they've seen what you and I have seen, which seems really, um, it just seems so bizarre to me because it shouldn't be a privilege. It shouldn't be just a small section of society has been out and seen the Milky Way. But, you know, that is, that is the case. Most people I speak just have no idea or they'll say oh well I can see these pictures online and I just think this is not what I'm talking about it's just it's you've got to be able to see imagine if you could open your front door and you looked up and saw the Milky Way I mean that's how we lived right that's how civilization 
that's how we live for a long, long time. We, that's how we experienced yeah. the kind of universe around us. And we've lost that experience. And I think it's, I think it's really essential to the human experience. I think that we're missing something so incredible and, you know, yeah, I've, I've tried to get involved before in kind of dark skies initiatives, but there's a lot of fear about darkness and darkness at night, even in the kind of really late hours when there aren't many people out. I don't know when that will will shift, but I continue to talk about it, you know, hoping that one day um, it's been, it might. It's been the inspiration for, for generations and looking up at the night sky it inspires poetry and inspires people to, to go into sciences. It's, it's, the, it's the natural wonder. It's amazing. You know, it's, it, it, you shouldn't you shouldn't be uh, uh, keeping that from from young generations. I don't know what the impact is going to be, but it's not good. No. And I think even, you know, my generation, I think we struggle with our kind of place in the universe, if I can <laughs> create a little pun there, which is that you know, be, being human, I mean, how much do you want to get into it? But part of being human is having this understanding that we are just this really unique species on this really unlikely planet, you know, in this vastly, not empty universe, but, you know, just empty of life. This universe are just you know, sheer scale of it. And you really grasp that when you look up at the night sky and you see, you know, planets that are just millions of miles away or you see shooting stars and you just, you have these moments that, you know what you'd call them, I guess you could call them spiritual moments. You could say that that's maybe what's missing. But I think it just helps you with remembering your place, like your place and that your place is just so unique and special. I mean, I have said all this in my, in my TED talk, so I won't repeat it, but I, I, but there's no one, I've never spoken to anyone who's, who's experienced that and just said, yeah, no, it was nothing, you know, it's nothing, it's just a few stars. <laughs> you have these kind of um, incredible, you know, experiences that give you a connection that I think, you know, we would have had for a long time when, when our ancestors spent a lot of time sleeping outdoors, you know, and living, living, you know, sleeping under the, the night sky. I think it was just more normal. And, they, you know, they told their stories by the stars and stuff. And, We've lost it, but we haven't replaced it with anything. Is what I think. You know, we just haven't, and it and it is part of nature. It's a, you know, we've got to broaden this idea of nature's just kind of creatures on our planet. Like nature ought to be all of, you know, the, the, I think of it as kind of the universe. This, every, uh, you know, the space that our planet inhabits. It's incredible. Mm. All of that is missing, and it's not really taught anywhere. Um, less, yeah, you know, if you go into astronomy and you learn, you learn more that way. But that's a quite quite a niche niche thing and even then i think it can get quite technical um although i've although usually the, the astronomers astronomers that i've met are very do still get very excited about space so there's there is that indeed so what could you tell me a little bit about your background and uh, maybe switch gears here and, and how you came to be involved with extinction rebellion i have been involved in environmental activism for a long time something like two decades and I kind of stepped out of these spaces because they don't they don't tend to be very evidence based, and I was finding that increasingly frustrating as I got older and started doing more research. You know, re re reading research on different topics, you know, GMOs, vaccines, all kinds of things, and thinking, "Oh, hang on, the group that I'm surrounded with is leaving the opposite to all of this research." <laughs> and so I kind of stepped out of of campaigning for a while, and I I went solo. Um, had my book published and when Extinction Rebellion came about initially I didn't get involved specifically because I just thought it's just going to be another kind of tribal you know um, inward looking group but I liked that they were very at least in the beginning they were very um, science you know they would say listen to the scientists you know it's what Greta Thunberg says as well follow the science um, read the IPCC report so I so I kind of got in touch tentatively on that basis saying well you know i think there's a role here for you know i'm a science communicator and there's a role for for you know talking about those those both sides of the issues that maybe some of the environmentalists in the group um wouldn't be as good at doing because they are more kind of old school you know um anti-gmos anti-nuclear type people and they you know they jumped at having me so you know to their credit they did want that at least again in the beginning when the movement was very new um they were all about that kind of advocacy so i stepped right in and i was given quite big slots as a spokesperson because i'd been doing public speaking for a long time it keen for me 
and come straight in. And I felt like, you know, in the beginning, it made a very positive difference and I was glad to be able to do it. But I think the organisation lost its way and that was where I we had to part ways, sadly. It was kind of inevitable that I would get involved. I've been involved in so many of these groups for so long and have always been on the lookout for something that's more kind of reason-based or more evidence-based. And they did try, whatever happened later, they did try to do that in the beginning, um, which you don't often see, you know, you don't often see in these movements. So I'm hopeful that that's going to be a new trend and that that will continue to happen with future movements. That's very interesting. I mean, I've also been very interested in advocating for the environment, and I considered joining Extinction Rebellion, um, but whenever I look into the um, details about the energy policy on NGOs, I'm consistently disappointed. And, you know, you do find a lot of these anti-GMO, anti-pharma, anti-nuke, um, so I found it difficult to join large environmental groups, uh, you know, kind of striking out on my own with the podcast is what I decided to do. I think a lot of these large environmental groups seem to have become like a cult of nature in their philosophy. They, you know, they've had a lot of success in the past, you know, 30 years ago, 50 years ago, even, you know, getting anti-pollution laws in place and cleaning up after industry where, you know, pollution was just part of business and, and rivers and lakes were dead. So they had all this success. And then I think nuclear just looked like another big target for, for most of these groups. And it was easy to put that target on after Chernobyl. And I think it's very difficult to look rationally at the necessary trades that society has to make for their energy policy. What do you think about that? Well, I, so I think a few things have happened with nuclear. Um, it was Chernobyl, but they, you know, we've, We've got to remember Big Oil's uh, role in this um, and that, you know, people, people have benefited. A lot of uh, large companies, fossil fuel companies, have benefited from anti-nuclear, you know, wave becoming extremely popular, lasting for a long time. In the same way that, you know, um, fossil fuel companies engineered climate denial. You know, that was that's been covered quite heavily now and we know and when you read up on it and you see what they did and what their tactics were, you kind of think, Oh, that makes more sense. You know, it's not just everybody's anti science. It's just very clever in, in putting out these ideas and you see the same ideas in nuclear denial, I call it. You see the same sort of things come out. It's always about the waste or the radiation, the same you know, they're just sound bites really. Once you talk to people about it, often they know very little. And sometimes they can be convinced but it has come from somewhere and it's very hard once that happens. It's like with the, um, what happened with tobacco, right? Big tobacco convincing people, you know, yes. it's very hard to unpick that once it takes hold. It's very hard. Um, and it's the same with vaccines. You know, Andrew Wakefield's paper on autism, um, you know, completely shoddy, shoddy data retracted by the Lancet. You know, all of, We know all of that happened, but got those sound bites out there and and that really stuck and it affected all the vaccines and he's carried on you know he still continues to tour and things doesn't he um and and it, it's created yeah it's created this movement of people around these issues and that's become part of their identity and really they're just being taken for a ride you know they've just um been completely duped and i was you know i speak i'm not saying this in an arrogant way because i speak as one of them you know formally um, I was anti-nuclear. I wrote. I wasn't um, hugely campaigning against it, but it wasn't the biggest issue of that time um, when I was growing up. It was more. Um, it was in the background, and I went to some, you know, C and D marches and things. But even then, kind of C and D was on its way out. It used to be a very, very big and popular movement here, campaign against nuclear disarmament. But it lumps together all nuclear, you know, it's supposed to be weapons, but it lumps together. Yeah, there you go. So. I think I could completely understand how things have come about. And, and you can see the same thing happening now with COVID and masks and people rebelling and people rebelling against lockdown and, you know, the, the poor, poor kind of explanations of, of the research. And the research with, with something like coronavirus has changed all the time. You know, there's been new things we found out every day. Like in the beginning, I remember them just saying, look, it pretty much just affects people from older groups. And then, you know, and then a child died and then, Everybody went, what? What's happening? And then they went, no, hang on. It affects, affects everybody. But people in older groups are at more risk generally 
of things like flu. So that's why we said that. And, and anyway, it's become very complicated. It's become quite a hard thing to discuss with anyone. And I find that almost anyone I speak to has um, really um, just have misconceptions about it. They have heard the wrong information. And you're reading everything that's actually happening. And I get all the press releases, you know, I see the data. You feel like you're in a, a weird bubble. We, I, I sort of think, well, I don't want to just correct people all the time. I hear them saying things and I'm like, well, that's not true. Someone said to me the other day, well, you know, masks are weird, well, but you know, they don't really work. And I, you know, if you've seen the huge body of research that's gone into, into the, the uh, you know, it's like saying, uh, it's like saying hand sanitizer doesn't work. Yeah. I haven't heard anyone say that actually. That's the equivalent. And I, sometimes I get into it and sometimes I think oh, that's interesting. I wonder where they're getting that from. Mm-hmm. Often you can trace it back to people or groups that are doing it, you know, deliberately spreading this, this disinformation, misinformation for whatever reason. Completely understand all of that. Um, but unfortunately, uh, you know, as you, as you say, these groups have done incredible things in terms of tackling air pollution and, you know, taking on issues where they, you know, someone needed to do it. They've also unfortunately contributed to, the, to what we call the climate and ecological crisis because if we had put new nuclear decades ago, we wouldn't be in this position. Mm-hmm, indeed. We just wouldn't be in this position of, of increasing emissions. Yeah, very, very few people who have been outspoken in a cause um, have the bravery to stand up and, and say that they were wrong. Uh, you know, I've learned something and now uh, I've changed my position. So for that, you have my admiration. Um, but, you know, people, once they've done this, it's much harder to uh, switch them over. Uh, what what helped you to, to make the, to come around to nuclear as a, as a potential uh, good for society? It was not an overnight change. I will say is that, um, when you're in these groups, sometimes you just leave things kind of by proxy. Like everybody around you is afraid of something, so you're afraid of it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and I heard these things about waste and radiation. But if you'd sat me down and said, all right, explain your actual fears, I probably couldn't have put them into words. But no one ever did sit me down because I was just in these groups of these people who believe these things. And, if, and also, if you don't come across advocates, and I can't think of any really from, you know, 10 years ago, um, if you don't come across advocates or watch some program where there's an advocate explaining things, then you don't you don't even come into an opposing view, so you don't get challenged at all. A friend challenged me. A friend, an engineer friend of mine, sent me a paper on Fukushima after he heard me say something about Fukushima um, in, in, in private um, and about how it caused all these deaths. I think this came from a Greenpeace report that said that been all these deaths from radiation and it had been covered up, something like that at the time. You know, that happened at the time. It's since been debunked or whatever. But I believed it. I believed it. And um, he sent me this paper that showed the deaths from radiation, which is the way zero. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's just no arguing with it. And so, sure, a lot of people would. A lot of people would argue with it. But I just, you know, I don't believe in conspiracies that level. some people do believe in conspiracies to that level so even if you say to them oh well you know Andrew Wakefield he was stripped of his doctoral status because he, he you know he uh, he broke ethics code he didn't speak to the parents to get permission to test um, their children um, several of those children already had autism the sample size was only 12 I've said those things and people will still say oh that's all just lies to discredit him you know, they, it even strengthens their, their arguments because they'll say, oh, they stripped him of his power because he's so powerful telling the truth. Once that happens, it's very difficult. But not everybody thinks like that, and I'm not in that camp. As soon as I saw the data, I went, oh, no, what if I'm wrong? What if I'm wrong? So I kind of just Googled around a bit, and I read, read up on that Greenpeace report, and I saw all the scientists saying, you know, this is wrong. And then I went, oh, wow, what if I'm wrong on everything <laughs> about nuclear? You know, what if I'm wrong about waste? And what if I'm wrong about... And my friend kind of pointed me towards different resources. One of them was uh, David Mackay's book, um, Sustainable Ends Without the Hot Air, and some other papers that I read. But, you know, very quickly I went, all right, I've just completely gotten this wrong. And when I went back to this these groups um, to try and talk about it, what I found is... There are a few people who are willing to talk about it, but mostly there was like it was like you were hitting a wall. 
And once you hit the wall, you realize you had to just back off because you're upsetting everybody hmm. and you can't be part of this group anymore. And that's a really hard thing to do. And I think I see that happen even now where people privately message me and say, actually, I agree. Or actually, I read this paper and I know this is true. They will not go against their group. They just will not risk it. And so they'll just, on the surface, still act anti-nuclear and think, oh, well, it's not doing any damage. But actually, I'm now saying these people need to come out and be open about it and advocate for, for nuclear because it is doing damage, it is doing damage to be anti-nuclear um, because we are in a, in a climate crisis and we do need to get our emissions down and we simply cannot do it without this as part of the solution. There's no good saying to me, oh, well, Zion, it takes years to build. Mm-hmm. That's, that's our fault for not building it years ago, right? I learned about global warming 30 years ago in school. We could have been building, building nuclear plants then. And, you know, these are the conversations that I'm having with people now where I'm trying to shift fear of the, you know, what's, ha- what's happening with climate to actually, and, and their fear of nuclear to where it should be, which is like, yeah, you know, understand that one is a scary thing. One is a scary thing with potential awful scenarios, but we can prevent it. We can prevent that. But then you have to, you have to come to this, this as part of the solution. And it is a big part of the solution. And, you know, sometimes people say, oh, of all things, why are you choosing this? But if you look at global um, emissions, it's something like 73% is from energy. Like, that's the biggest kind of slice of the pie. That is what what I'm trying to go for, because I think the rewilding and the tree planting are all much less, um, you know, they're less controversial and they're happening. All of those things are happening. And even with diet, dietary shifts, things like that are happening. But the energy the energy is not it's not happening in Britain. It's not happening. We're still mostly dependent on fossil fuels. We're using a lot of gas. We still use coal. Yeah. Um, you know, when our when our wind output or solar output goes down, we we rely on coal. It's just it's just immoral at this stage, you know, and it's ridiculous. What what kind of society are we living in? Like we have these incredible technologies. We are living like some kind of, you know, 18th century like we're in the 18th century you're burning coal come on i mean we know even if you put climate aside we know this is really bad for our health and for the health of the planet there seems to be a double standard in in hazard and risk management it's painful for me to see it i mean the, the fly ash from coal plants is radioactive and, and you know if a nuclear plant were somehow to come into ownership of a pile of fly ash they wouldn't be able to dump it in like like coal plants do because of the regulations on on radioactive release from nuclear plants they would be required to store it in some sort of stable repository in the geological underlayer <laughs> yeah i was reading about this recently actually but the um it's very hard to admit that idea people have about radiation and it's linked to nuclear it's very hard um i try to just to be honest i try not to get bogged down into those discussions because as i say a lot of people, it just goes straight into conspiracy or they privately agree, but they won't say it locally because their group, it won't, their group won't approve of it. So you can't really get anywhere with that. Mm. I'm trying to do, what I'm trying to do is just shift people who are not have not yet fallen into those camps. And thankfully, they are small camps, loud, but they're small, um, and just reach people who haven't yet heard all the awful stories. Or, you know, they might have some stuff in the back of their mind because they saw a documentary or something. But they're, they're open to hearing you know, what uh, what a physicist has to say or what a nuclear engineer has to say and, and kind of get into those people and just saying, well, you know, we have this, we are in this crisis situation. Aren't we lucky that we have this incredible solution? This solution is, is a gift to humanity. Like, we're lucky that we have it. If we didn't, I don't know what we would do in terms of you know, in terms of tackling our energy needs, which are growing all the time. And 20 years ago, I would have said, oh, we just need to lower our emissions because that was that's what, you know, the green groups um, advocate for. And I was a part of those groups. And, um, you know, I have quite a low carbon lifestyle. Over time, I realized that it, it just isn't that appealing to people and that, you know, they can't be forced to do it. And of course, I don't believe that they should be forced to do it anyway. But that's the end game. But unless they are forced, it's not going to happen. It's been 20 years and those emissions have continued to rise. The amount that we would have to cut back, it's just maths, right? At the end of the day, it's just maths. We can all say, you know, do this less or do that less or drive less or put your lights off when you lose, leave the room. But it's not enough to really make a significant difference. The amount we're talking about is something like I saw a, one report that said um, from a green organisation that said it would require... 
they wanted to meet our energy needs using just renewables, and they said it. Their own report said it would require forty percent reduction in energy use. I mean, that is a lot, right? That is a huge number. And if people don't want to do it, then what are you talking about? Are you talking about authoritarian rule? Are you talking about eco-fascism? You know, nobody <laughs> agrees with that. I mean, well, maybe there are some people. Nobody right. I've met. Nobody I've met agrees with that. Nobody wants it to be forced possibly done therefore we need to find solutions that are realistic instead of still banging on this drum about people just need to change their lifestyles no people just need clean abundant energy and they can go about living their high quality lifestyles i mean that they have you know have good lives and they have they have healthy children and they have access to vaccines and healthcare and all the things that we need but we just need to try and do it without polluting our planet anymore and actually it is not that hard it should not be that hard. And I don't think it is just that it's environmental groups. I think it's politicians not having a scientific background mm-hmm. um, generally or having an basic grasp of science where they're just not making the right policy decisions. Well, it's painful to see Germany backtracking on nuclear with Angela Merkel, who's like a, a, a chemist. A she pe- is a scientist. <laughs> <laughs> and she's being forced by the public opinion to just shut down nuclear, you know, even though she knows that it's what we need. You know, you can't go against the public if you're a politician. I don't understand what's going to happen in Germany because it seems like every day there's new news about how awful the situation is there, but they're not backtracking, right? They're not backtracking. I'm working with some activists there actually trying to get a pro-nuclear movement off the ground, kind of provide some balance at least. And there are, they do exist. You know, in fact, he told me that the polls over there, it's kind of 50-50 split. Not everybody is anti-nuclear. It's just that those voices have been so loud and so dominating for so long mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The public opinion is not all anti-nuclear and that's really important to remember so trying to get them you know a, a louder voice might help to shift things a little bit because yeah politicians just care about votes and they'll do what they think um some more votes and we're seeing this happen in france as well now where you know they shut fassenheim this year the oldest reactor 43 years of clean energy you know and 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 decommissioned for no reason no good reason you know i'd understand if it's decommissioned because there's an issue not not because there's a political issue though that's just california as well it's just ridiculous you cannot say every day yeah california as well every day we're saying we're in this climate emergency and then we're shutting down nuclear it's 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 just uh it's almost like the fight of our time which is why i'm completely in there 100 you know not an easy fight by any means but i feel like we're making progress simply because this other side hasn't existed before. And I think, you know, from what I've seen, that's because a lot of the people on this other side, the pro-nuclear people, the pro-nuclear people that I speak to, a lot of them are engineers and scientists, you know, mathematicians. They're STEM types. They're STEM types. They don't tend to be the ones that will go and glue themselves, you know, <laughs> glue themselves to something or go and, you know, take part in some really colourful you know, activism grabs headlines and grabs the attention of politicians. They don't do that. And that's what we're missing on this side. What we're missing on the environmental side, actually, amazing, like in Extinction Rebellion, the amazing creativity, people just volunteering their time to come up with all these symbols and artwork. And, you know, you probably saw some of the, you know, the pink bow and some of the incredible, like, outfits and stuff, things that just would make out of scrap material. Honestly, they're so creative totally missing the stem side yeah yeah I'm missing the science you know so they're not advocating necessarily for the right things because they're missing the science and then you've got people on the other side who are you know very stem oriented but they're not they're not creative and they're not they're not communicating and there's got to be some kind of bridge to be had there to be forged there i think um anyway so i've been trying to get so i don't know if you followed any of nuclear for net zero little group i founded here in britain we were just taking off and then have had to pause because of lockdown. So we're under lockdown here still. But we did a couple of campaigns. So we did one in Ipswich with bananas, which we handed out to local people who talk about radiation. So we'd hand them a banana and say, did you know this is radioactive? And we'd have really, we had a really good conversations with people in Ipswich, actually. And, um, you know, who mostly I would say were pro, pro-nuclear and pro the idea of having a local plan as well because it brings jobs to that area and a lot of people that we spoke to didn't want their children to move away which is what happens in these areas um where there aren't a a lot of jobs and there aren't you know highly skilled and well-paid jobs um and then the second time we went down to the actual beach where sizewell b is and we swam in the sea in the summer we had a big picnic for nuclear 
and um, upset the local, uh, you know, like three anti <laughs> blue turned up with a little banner and stood in the corner, which is fine. Um, you know, there were like 20 of us. Um, we swam in the sea and it's incredible nice. space. Nice. And yeah, that was part of just kind of launching this new movement of pro-nuclear environmentalism. It's an environmental group. We're evidence-based. Um, and yeah, we're called Nuclear Net Zero. We're just in the process of setting up a website. And honestly, it's a group of really um, involved people who are all ready to go and do more actions. We're just waiting for us to be able to get out into the world again after uh, after lockdown ends. Yeah, you make, you make a good point about... Um stem people not being effective advocates for nuclear power. I mean, I remember the the post-Chernobyl period where, you know, there was this huge environmental push to, to stop nuclear and it was conflated with nuclear weapons and the Cold War at the time. Uh, and, you know, there's a general mistrust of science uh, building throughout that time. And scientists, you know, they highlighted the issue of climate change and, you know, we've told the governments that they need to do something and we're, our job is done. They stepped back and they expected society to follow through. But, you know, none of them got out there and, and you know, were, were outside the nuclear plants with their signs. It was all the, the, the anti-nuke people. Now, you having a master's in science communication, it must be painful for you to look at how nuclear proponents advocate to the public in general and so many mistakes have been made in the past what what pains you most about typical nuclear power conversations and um, i wouldn't say that anything specifically pains me i think it's probably because i used to be one of those people so i completely understand how it happens and um i think that we are very you know as a species we are very geared towards having a tribe like evolutionarily speaking if you didn't have a tribe, if you went against me and your tribe, and you, you know, you lost out, you probably wouldn't survive. Like you had to just keep your head down along with everybody, you know. Um, I'm really, I'm really interested in kind of, you know, the evolution of the way that our brains work and the way that we put together in society and in these groups. And so I think it's kind of understandable. But then at the same time, um, I went, you know, I did this master's and the, I did this master's because I was already doing this advocacy work, and at that time it was in vaccines. So there's a chapter in, in my book on vaccines, mm. and that chapter is just informed by the research. Um, at that time, it's like every other chapter in there, just like the chapter on transport, just like the chapter on diet, just like the chapter on uh, on sleeping or whether or not you can co-sleep and feeding and whether or not you should breastfeed, like all of that was in there and it was not my opinion and I made that very clear in the introduction it was just I've read hundreds of studies here's what they say make up your own mind mm -hmm. and I had all this support from people about the chapters they agreed with so like with the sleeping or with you know um feeding you know they say yeah I really agree and then they'd say I don't like your vaccine chapter it was really funny because to me I would just say it's just it's just scientists and it's the same scientific method underpinning everything. And then I'd realized that a lot of these people I was speaking to, I mean, I had masses of emails after that book came out. Hmm. Um, the people I was speaking to didn't have a grasp of the scientific method. And it was a real like wake up call for me where I went, hang on, something's going on here. We're, you're having a conversation up here and we really need to go right back, where, all the way back down here and there. And, and to be honest, I think that's a failure of the system. I think that we are, we cannot be teaching science in the right way if this many people do not grasp the really basic value of science, mm -hmm. we have this entire society that's built on science and technology. Most people don't have a basic grasp of it. Like they don't need to understand everything. I don't understand everything in every different area of science, but I am science literate enough that I can go away and read up studies and speak to scientists and have a grasp that way. And yeah. So I went to do this master's because I went, all right, what is going on here? I need to learn how to communicate with these people. Um, and the first thing they said is, look, if you're in this room doing this master's, you already have a really high amount of science literacy. Like you are already well above most people and that you need to understand that because you're probably not communicating on the right level already. And that was really useful actually um, to hear that because it explained this, this massive gap between where I was and what I was trying to talk about. And the other thing they said was, look, don't, it's called the deficit model in science communication. It's this idea of like, look, scientists are this, uh, you know, this knowledge that's in this 
jug, this jug of knowledge, and everybody else has a deficit, and we should fill them up with this jug. By the way, this is massively disproved. Like, do not use this model. Do not use this. But, but it's what they used to do. It's what what they used to do. It used to be believed that, oh, most people, they just need to be filled with knowledge. And actually, I think, to a degree, that is how our – I mean, I don't know now – I think back to when I was in school, what the education system was like then with science. That is what it was. It's just parrot learning. You just sit and you repeat. You know, you weren't learning the critical thinking and the you know the fundamental stuff like about the scientific method. It was just parrot learning, and you had to read around it and and understand more about things to expand your understanding. But you didn't need that to pass pass your exams. You know. Yeah, I realised that all of these things mixed up together completely makes sense. I don't tend to, um, you know, get frustrated or get cross at people that I speak to because I just think, well, all of this makes sense. All a product of this system. Some of it's a product of our evolution, you know. And um, and the problem really is that there isn't a balance of people who are communicating. And even when you see a lot of people who are communicating, they're doing it in this deficit model type way. And that is just completely wrong. It doesn't work. But it's also very patronizing. And if you're having to communicate that way, then you don't have communication skills and you need to improve on them. And I, you know, honestly, I work with a lot of scientists. I have so much respect for work that they do, but I've seen them do this and I've seen doctors do this. And one of the things they found with, with vaccines is, is that often, not always, but often when people were really anti-vaccines because they'd had a bad experience with the doctor, the, the patient doctor trust you probably know all about this but the trust is really important really important to the, the extent that doctors can just give out placebos and it will be effective <laughs> for, for patients if the trust is there you know it's incredible this tr- it's always been a really uh, incredible relationship so if you go in and you say something like i don't want my daughter to have a vaccine because i read about formaldehyde your doctor scoffs at you and this has happened right mm-hmm. your doctor scoffs at you because look all right you and i might think well that's a ridiculous thing to say if you do that and you don't address the patients you're just looking at the knowledge side and you're not addressing the patient's needs they go away and they go and speak to a homeopath who listens to them attentively and who gives them you know attention and care and then a, 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 a you know a sugar pill that doesn't do anything but that makes them feel better they'll just take that instead of the vaccine was all really that doctor needed to do, and I appreciate they're overworked and it's hard to get everything right, and they, they've got this huge body of knowledge, and communications hasn't traditionally been a huge part of it, where they, you know, really, they, that person just needed to sat down and be told, look, you, that's true, but there's more for Haldemide in a pair. Like, please don't get your information from whatever blog you read that on. Come to me and I'll address your concerns. And actually, that has been found. That approach has been found. Increased vaccine uptake. When they've taken, they've had these kind of open surgeries with doctors where people could come and just, just bring all of their questions. And some of the questions are ridiculous. I hear this stuff with nuclear all the time. Oh, I read about three-eyed fish. I'm like, did you read about three-eyed fish or did you get that from the Simpsons? You know, it's true. Seriously, like that, that's sometimes the stuff I'm dealing with. But the second you laugh and you scoff someone out of the room, you've lost, you've just lost it. You've just lost that some of it is on us and some of it is on the communications. And once that's there where they think, oh, well, I don't trust that group because they laughed at me, that is very hard. That is very hard to get back. We've got to get this right in the beginning, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can't do that with the beginning now with nuclear. And you can't do it with vaccines. There's no going back. It's all about unpicking and fixing. You don't do it by just throwing masses of information at people. It's about the trust, about listening listening to things that you don't necessarily want to hear, but sometimes there's a kernel of truth. So that woman who said the thing about formaldehyde, it's true. It's true. They do contain that. And that's a really scary thing if you read on a blog that, oh, there's formaldehyde and it causes cancer and all this stuff. Obviously, the context is missing. So you just need the context, which is that there's more naturally occurring in a pair. You know, it's okay. It's okay. And, And actually, it's also okay that you're a little bit scared of a thing looks to you like it's hurting your baby because they put an injection and your baby cries anybody would have a response to that. i have a response to that and i'm not anti-vaccine my kids have had all their vaccines but you still have that response all you need is someone to capitalize it and use that emotion you know to create a fear you you've gone that happens with vaccines it happens with nuclear it happens with gmos yes you know you, it, it, that's the thing and so you need people on the other side doing the reassuring stuff saying 
look, you know, here's the reasonable stuff. It, it is assurance. And it's not, maybe that's not scientific. Maybe that's, you know, maybe that's like the opposite to science because we're just cold, hard facts. But actually everything in communication is about that. It is about, you know, depending to the person and the person's needs and, and fears and offering assurances rather than just saying, here's the facts. Why don't you understand the facts? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a struggle to not... Um, you know, if you've done this for a while, to not just strike back off the cuff, and a lot of people certainly do that. Um, but I think nuclear energy, especially, has a potential to be a kind of this strong bipartisan issue. The, the opposition to nuclear, I think, is is a mile wide and an inch deep, and I think it's something that we have the potential to to move forward with. Um, as a solution to climate change in a major way, but how do we, how do advocates, how should advocates approach changing the minds of the majority of environmentally minded folks to save the world? I really think it's about having the conversations and being respectful in those conversations. Even if you get attacked, even if they're saying things that you think are ridiculous. Look, I often say to people, if you examine every one of your beliefs, you will find some pseudoscience in there. You will find some woo. You will find something like maybe we can agree to disagree. And I'm not going to comment on you believing in X, Y, Z religion or God. You know, I'm an atheist. Um, maybe we could just disagree too because we don't want to be disrespectful. But let's be honest that most of us, when you dig really deep, maybe you read your stars, maybe you read horoscopes. You know, you have some kind of belief is not necessarily uh, backed by science and that's okay the problem is when it's it becomes this wider movement of lots of people behind it and it's actually you know preventing progress which is what being anti-vaccination or being anti-nuclear does and that's that and that becomes a problem and as i say there's lots of things that have gone into that and it's been encouraged by various groups as well by various people with vested interests and so, you know there's a lot to unpick there you just have to remember that when you speak with anyone and actually i'll give you a really good example of when I was much younger and I was much more open-minded, I would have been responsive to someone who came forward with this information. The only time I remember having this interaction, and it was with a scientist, um, was when I said something about, I think it was about GMOs, and I honestly didn't know a lot about it, and I was not, I was never really anti-GMO. I think I came across as that to this person because I didn't know a lot about it, and I'd obviously misunderstood something. And he just said something like, Science doesn't care about your feelings, Zeon. Something like that. And do you know what it did? It just put me off. And I kind of went, oh, well, he's really pro-GMOs. I don't agree with that. And it, it creates a polarization because I was like, well, I don't like that person who just doesn't care about anything, who's, who comes across as arrogant. And I completely understand what he was trying to do. A single interaction just put, completely put me off even looking into the subject because I was like, well, I don't want to be like him. Is it going to make me like him, you know? And that was me looking at the communicator more than anything else and the way that he represented science, which shouldn't be this arrogant thing. Like, yes, it's an incredible thing. We should celebrate. We have this process, you know, almost a self-correcting process when it works, but it also gets things wrong. And communication's also got to be a part of it. And traditionally, it hasn't really been. But I think we're realising more and more that it has to be. You know, like most scientists, they don't, you know, if they do come stuff, they're doing it in their own time and they're doing a great job, you know, on Twitter or whatever social media. It's not actually part of the job. You know, they're not paid to do it. They're not necessarily trained to do it. You know, there's more and more comms training for doctors now. But they, with vaccines, they really realised that they hadn't done that in the first place. And they needed to kind of, you know, start doing it and work out what how, how that needed to look in order to increase vaccine uptake. Um, so, yeah, just, just remember, you know, just remember that not everybody who, who might say something that you think is, whoa, really anti-science is necessarily just a conspiracy theorist and also that you're not always right on everything and it's really important to just have those conversations in an open-minded way mm, um, yeah. because if he had if that person had he could have convinced me in 10 minutes with an argument for gmos he, he instead he said a kind of disparaging thing because he assumed i was part of some group and that was it he just killed my interest in it for a long time and with other people they would really take that to heart and they will hold that forever they'll go back to their group where they're safe where it's all anti-GMO people and they'll just stay there. And that's when it becomes very polarised and things are very polarised right now in, in just every way, right? And we've got we've we've got to step out of our echo chamber and have conversations outside, you know, outside of those groups with people of opposing views. 
I see it all the time. I'm on Twitter and I see it all the time where it kind of just becomes this arguing and people become unkind. And I just think, how is that ever going to convince anyone of anything? If someone's unkind to you, do you think, are you going to be convinced by them? It doesn't matter how your arguments are. If they're unkind to you, you've already shut down. It's a horrible medium for, for empathy. Mm-hmm. I see people doing that. You know, I see anti-nuclear people doing this. They do it to me. Call me a shill or they call me, you know, whatever. All, I get all kinds of stuff. I just think, well, anyone can just look at this exchange and see what they see. And they see that one person is calling name calling and one isn't. And that's up to them to go away and think about it. And you don't know what might come of that. But it's certainly the sort of thing that I would have noticed before and gone away and thought about, which is more, which is how humans operate, right? It's more how we operate. We operate on how we feel and how someone makes us feel rather than, you know, what they've said and how even how true it is. That's, that's just the... It's just the state of it. It's just yeah. that's just hu- the human mind. You know, our risk perception's really bad. We just go by what what people are making us feel and how whether or not we're comfortable with the people around us. I find when I'm arguing online, I'm always on the defensive. You know, what about Fukushima? What about nuclear waste? And it, I spend ninety percent of my time, you know, trotting out context for these people. I feel like maybe it'd be more effective if we'd be talking about the positives rather than defending the negatives and changing the conversation. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of what I was saying, that just getting into it. Because if you get into those arguments, it's very hard not to become negative. And also, I think you just get burned out. We don't need to get burned out. We have this incredible solution, this incredible thing. And and look, the news is most, most societies, including Britain, when polled, most people aren't anti-nuclear. You know, it's again, it's about 50-50 split, you know, varies depending on the demographics, but a lot of young people here are really open-minded about it. Shouldn't we be reaching them? Why argue with a small pocket of people who will probably never change their mind? I mean, yes, they're loud, but they're not the only voice. When you can help to build a voice that is pro-science in this area that those people cannot touch, that, you know, needs to have those conversations. And really, it's not a lot of people doing that. I'm trying to do it. There are some people doing it, but mostly what I see is still arguing with these old school. And all you're doing is giving them more of a voice. Uh-huh. Really, you know, it's true. And every everything, you know, when I see it in my timeline, and I just see these ongoing arguments, it looks to me like, wow, the anti-nuclear people are really powerful and they're really passionate. And you know, maybe they've got a point. You know, even a part of me thinks, wow, maybe they've got a point because people are arguing with them. And if I read what they're writing, I'm like, wow, that's just nonsense. And then I think, but if people are giving them the time of day, then they're um, legitimizing the nonsense, you know? Mm. Sometimes just one comment, like, here, sure, you said this thing about Fukushima, here's one one article. Up to you, take it or leave it. And they probably won't read it. Anybody who's seeing that discussion has the option to read it. And they can either look at this person who's been quite shouty and, you know, unkind, or they can just click the paper and that, Again, you don't know where that goes. And I think this is this assumption that, oh, well, you know, you can't convince people, yada, yada. And, and I don't think that's true. And I think this is what, why I said at the beginning, there are people in Exodus Rebellion who are pro-nuclear. It's really important to realise this because otherwise everybody is just tarnishing all of these people with the same brush. Oh, they're just all anti-science. It's not true. It's not true. There's very um, varied opinions within all of these groups. And I think this is more promising than ever before because I think – 20 years ago, you wouldn't have found it. I think it was really normal to be anti-nuclear. And the fact that XR has people are pro-nuclear shows that things are shifting. I think, I think that there is this kind of battle for science going on and that there are more and more people stepping up and getting involved and cha- and like willing to change their minds, or not even just change their minds, like just, uh, you know, formulate better opinions. And there's more data and information than ever before. But we've got to be careful about how we communicate it. It's really a message of hope, and it's maybe the only message of hope that's realistic that I can see coming out of the environmental movement. So I think we have uh, a benefit there, uh, uh, you know, something that that helps uh, move this forward and is helping to grow um, the pro-nuclear argument. Absolutely. Um, You know, I think over time it will just become more normal for environmentalists to embrace nuclear i don't think i don't think it's a huge battle i think it will be inevitable my concern my concern is that 
we are losing time. Like we do need to be building reactors now because they do take a long time. Yes. And I don't want it to be another 10 years before people turn around and say, oh, wait, we should do that because we've lost 10 years, you know, and someone should have been doing this 10 years ago. And as I say, I don't think anybody was. Um, and this year, especially, I've seen more and more pro-nuclear advocates come out and, and be vocal and be active. And that's really promising as well. Um, it's absolutely what we need. And we cannot we cannot do it enough. But I think doing something like setting up a group like Nuclear for Net Zero and, and doing positive actions and having fun, you know, completely unpicking all of the arguments right away. You know, we went and swam in the beach at Sizewell, literally had people messaging me saying, are you sure it's safe? Because radiation, and they didn't even know that they had spleen. And those were not anti-nuclear people. It's people I knew. Right in the back of their mind, they had this idea, probably, again, from things like pop culture, like The Simpsons. And I said, it's completely fine. It's completely safe. But then we saw these pictures of an amazing day on the beach, us all swimming, straight away just killed that idea, shift that, you know, and that's what needs to happen to shift these, these kind of, I don't know what you'd call them, little, little seeds of doubt that can then easily be capitalised by uh, on by people who are anti-science for whatever reason. You know, that little fear you have that, oh, my baby's crying because she's had a, just had a dab, you know, and someone says, oh, well, you know, doing damage. Straight away, they've capitalised on that emotion, right? They've capitalised on that seed, of doubt and what really you just need to hear is the assurance is isn't that great that your daughter is not going to die of a preventable disease isn't that great i mean i have cousins in india my parents moved here from india back in the 70s who are crying out they are crying out for these vaccines and you know what they die of preventable diseases and even when my parents have sent across money to help them um they have not been able to help because there is no access medication cannot get the access even with the money they cannot get the access how lucky are we that's that's the message right that's the message instead of the message what you'll see is people saying oh why are you worried about this you're you're an idiot and then the person says no you're an idiot because autism and then you think hang on a minute there's a message that's missing here and that's where the advocacy's got to be and it's the same with nuclear right it's the same with nuclear and it's the same really with any technology and 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 get lost in translation and i don't think it's always deliberate you know you something like crispr technology gene editing look you know we can why are scientists developing this oh well they realize that you know couples with who could otherwise pass on awful diseases can, can have children who don't you know you know this right These children could be saved from a lifetime that's incredible but all you see in the papers the next day is designer babies <laughs> right and there's the seed right there in your head. There's the seed. It's about choosing eye colour. And you don't even necessarily hear the other part of the story. We need to tell those stories and these incredible things that can push humanity forward. We can't push humanity forward if a load of people come out and protest against it, right? So yes, yes. <laughs> it's essential. It's really essential work. Wow. Now, it's a great message of hope. And, and thank you, Zion, for coming to join me today on The Rational View. I really appreciate uh, your message and we need to have more people like you out there um, pushing these positive messages for society. Uh, so before we go, do you want to make a plug for your website? Um, I think you mentioned my website earlier. It's theonlights.co.uk. I'm also very active on Twitter at theonpre, that's Z-I-O-N-P-R-E. And there's a contact form on my website where anyone can give me an email if they want to get in touch. But thank you very much for having me, Al. It's been very interesting. Thank you as well, Zion and Dark Skies. <laughs> Dark Skies. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please consider visiting my patron page and becoming a patron of this podcast at patron.podbean.com slash the rational view.